So we're going to look at Psalm 90 um, at this time. And um, as I said, we were already introduced to verse 12. And that is really our prayer request that the Lord would number our days so that we can present to him a heart of wisdom. And we're going to talk a little bit about that and just how fleeting time is. I think if you have a child, then you know, and if your child is, well, even if your child's only two months old, you see time passing right before you and all the changes that happen with a baby and then as they grow up. And particularly if your child now is 35, like mine, <laughs> you can't believe it. I mean, you think almost yesterday you were whacking him with that whacker. <laughs> and now, you know, you're still traumatizing him, but not exactly the same. So it's, it's just time is marching on. And that's what we're going to talk about um, for the next few minutes. So let's pray and jump right in there. Lord, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for all the different journeys that you have brought us through and our dear sister's testimony, how it touched our hearts and just encouraged us in our walk, but just it, it caused us to want to celebrate with her what you've done in a life. And that's what you do. You just do great things and you do all things well. So we thank you for that. And we thank you that we can encourage one another with testimonies and we can learn from each other and grow and and stretch and, and just see what you can do in a life. So thank you for that. And I just pray now, Lord, as we look at Psalm 90, the last of our talks for this day, that you would just um, use me as your vessel and that through me I would be able to just speak the truth of your word and that your word would serve as an encouragement to our hearts as we move forward um, in this day and in, in our life. And so we thank you, Father. And we just pray, Father, that your word will serve as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and that we would observe the truths of your word. In your name we pray, amen. So 23 to 24 years of our life are spent sleeping. If you live to be about 70 years old, 16 of your years would probably be spent at work, if you work eight hours a day. And probably about 15 years of your life would be spent watching TV or on the internet, that is kind of scary. You would spend six years eating out of those 70 years if you were to put it all together. For me, it might be 12 because, you know, I love, I guess it's called a foodie. Do you guys call it that? People that love food? That's what the young people say in California. Um, you would spend about five years in leisure. You'd spend about four years being sick. You'd spend about two years getting dressed, you know, if you were to compact it all together, and maybe six years traveling. So that's a 70-year life. And when you look at that, and when you look at the investment of time and how quickly a life goes, you wonder, am I really using my life to God's glory? Am I really using my time wisely? And I like the way the ladies chose this to be the last session to do Psalm 90, because as we walk away, we want to think about how critical time is and how important it is for us to think about time and to measure time, because time does march on. It was... Um, Irma Bombeck that said, remember all those women on the Titanic who waved away the dessert cart? <laughs> Just let think about it for a minute. Because <laughs> had I known we were going down, <laughs> I would have, if it were me, I mean, I would have just said, okay, bring it on. But they didn't know. So they were daintily waving it off. Um, it was Flip Wilson that said, if I had my whole life to live, and that, he's a, a former comedian. Of, I have to translate for the young people, but he's an old-time comedian. But he had said, I had my whole, if I had my whole life to live over again, I don't think I'd have the strength, you know, because you'd look and realize. So we need to seize the moment. Life happens while you're making other plans. My husband and I, we always wanted to have four kids, and we woke up, and we were like, past childbearing ages, it seemed like, and it just, just didn't happen quick enough. So we thank the Lord for the two that we had, and, and there it is. Well, Psalm 90 is an interesting psalm. It is absolutely um, amazing the way that this song, psalm came about. It was written by Moses, so that makes it the oldest psalm. He was a man of God, and as you look in your Bible there, you see, no matter what version, you probably see a prayer of Moses. So here we are, another prayer the man of God. And even just those words before we dip into the psalm, man of God, makes me think if somebody could just say one thing about you, would it be woman of God? Or would it be woman of gossip? Or woman of drama? So many women are drama queens. I mean, everything is just so 
dramatic? <laughs> or would it be a woman of character? Or what would it be? And I love how it was for Ruth. She was described as a woman of excellence. And hopefully that's our goal, that we would want to be known as women of excellence. Well, Moses wrote this. He was a man of God. And it's a unique psalm because it, it doesn't have, um, a lot of psalms have an affinity to another one that they connect with. But this is similar to Deuteronomy 33. And basically, it gives the events that you would see. It's kind of written after the events theologians say, after Numbers 20. So you're looking at something that was written when he had a real historical drop back to the writing of this psalm. And it's a magnificent prayer that he is praying about the, the lives of these frail individuals that he is watching die before him. And the reason this was just so fascinating to me in studying this, that in the context, it's kind of the end of the 40 years of wilderness wanderings when he's writing these words. And so it's after the, ex the Exodus generation passes away and he's in the wilderness. You remember the story about the 12 spies. They all agreed that everything that God said it was, it was, you know, the, the promised land. Um, Ten of the spies, though, were afraid of the giants. We talked about fear. They felt like the giants would overtake them, even though God had promised them this land. And you know the two, Joshua and Caleb. Caleb. They were the only two who believed that God's word and that he would, they would conquer um, the land. And so the people believed the majority, which is what a lot of people believe. And so because all the girls at school are not walking with the Lord, maybe I shouldn't. You know, the majority rules, and it shouldn't rule. God's word should rule. But anyway, that's what happened. And so they end up wondering. There's 40 years of wondering for the 40 days that the spies were in the land. Everyone who came out of Egypt was going to drop dead, basically, except Joshua, Caleb, and everybody who is under 20 years old. And so he is writing this psalm with that backdrop of seeing all these people die because God had said they were going to die, and they did die. So the Exodus generation would die outside of the land, and based on population numbers, given in numbers, Moses saw the death. Now get ready for this. I couldn't believe it. I, I like statistics and stuff. I just, he saw the death of 1,200,000 people based on the, when you go to numbers and you start numbering all the numbers. I didn't do this, but I read theologians that did do it. And so 38 years, God intended simply for them to be passing through, but instead it was a huge cemetery. And so if you were to break that down on a yearly basis, I'm sure they didn't die methodically, you know, in so many, like every, like equal amounts. I'm sure he saw masses die at one time. But if you were to separate it so that we can process how many people this is, okay. So per year, that would be 31,580 people that he would have witnessed their deaths. If you were going to break it down by day, because when you read the words of what he says, you've got to think about this. You can't just read it and not know that he's thinking of this, because this is what happened right before he wrote it. So 87 people died every single day, 87 funerals a day, if since the sin of Cadus Bernia, if you were to take those 38 years, because remember the last two, anyway, if you were to add it all up, that's what it would happen. So after witnessing this, Moses reflects and writes Psalm 90. So he's seeing a whole generation die. And so we think, and I'm a PK, so I've been to a lot of funerals as a little baby all the way up, because that's what my dad did all the time, because people in his congregation <laughs> passed away, and so I was there at the funeral. So I've seen a lot of them, but I cannot say that I've seen 87 in one day. That's a lot of funerals. And so he saw a lot, but what he gathered from all of this was the re he reflected on God's eternality. He certainly reflected on man's mortality. And why wouldn't you if you saw all those people dying? And he saw that in light of how brief life was and how these people were not going to have that much time, he wanted to pray certain things for what is left. And I don't want to be morbid. I don't want us to have a morbid session here. But I want us to be realistic. We don't know what we've got left. We are frail and we are mortal. And it's really hard for the young women to grasp that because you're so pretty. Your skin is so tight. You're so beautiful. Speaking of tight, your figure is tight. You know, you don't have the, as my mother-in-law used to say, 
her arm was still waving after she had already, you know, it was like, she's like, stop it, stop it, you know. And then finally she told me, it's just not for public view anymore. You know, she said, I'm just, I'm going down to this point. On a, and you notice I do have sleeves. <laughs> so, but things change. But when you're young, you don't think it's ever going to happen. You just so funny, you know, you never, you see all these old people in front of you, but you never think that's going to be me. It just, how could it? You know, you're so vibrant, you're so youthful, but it happens. The only alternative is you're dead, okay? And then that's great because you're with the Lord. But the point is, on earth, you will not look like you look for the rest of it. So I'm going to look right in the faces of these young, beautiful ones and let them know that time is fleeting. And I think part of, of, I don't know why the Lord did it. He could have had us just be forever young. I mean, he could have had us look forever young. But he built this into the process. And I, I feel like part of it is just so we can measure time. I mean, it's a way for us to really measure that time is marching on. And if we just look the same, we might not have the right concept of time. But when you can look at your granny, and you can look at yourself, and then you look at, look at your granny's picture 50 years ago, and you're like, that was granny? Whoa! You know. But it helps us to see that it's moving on, and we have to value it. And I feel like we can learn from Moses, because we can pray the things that he prayed, even though we don't see death just like that in front of us. But some of us do. There are seasons where death really there can be a zone where it just seems like it just keeps happening over and over and over again, and particularly when you reach certain ages. So you even feel more motivated at those moments like Moses did. Well, let's read Psalm 90, 1 through 12, and just brief comments. Try to get to whet your appetite on this psalm. That's my goal. Obviously, we can't go through any detailed thing with the few moments that we... Do you know I never turn this thing on? Shame on me. Okay, I'm going to need to readjust it. Oh, they're so sweet and loving. But I am going to probably have you girls stand up again. Because some of you... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just a jokey joke. You look good. Okay, all right. So, Psalm 90, and we're going to be looking at, as I said, um, God's eternality, you'll see in the first two verses. And then 3 through 11, you see this idea of man's mortality, his frailty. And then you see petitions for God in light of life's brevity. 90 verse 12 is one of them, through 17, and then even Psalm 39, there's some wonderful um, comparisons there. If we have a chance, we'll look at that. And then, of course, the classic Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. And so there's just a lot of good stuff about time. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You've placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, and if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it's gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So, teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Let your works appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. So he is talking about God in verses 1 and 2 being his dwelling place. You're talking about people that were like nomads. Remember, they're in the wilderness. They're wandering all around. And he is saying, God, even though we did not have a permanent dwelling, 
you have been our dwelling place. I've seen you be our home. So God is the oasis of refreshment and encampment for his people and has been for many generations. You might be an army brat and you might have been rolling all around the country with your dad and, you know, or your mom that served in the, in the military. But when God is your dwelling place, the actual physical dwelling place doesn't matter. And so I think about my precious two little darlings that move from the West Coast to the East Coast. It doesn't really matter where they go, though, and we have a lot of transplants. Carol was telling me, not half the congregation, but a whole bunch of people are from California that now are here in your church family. And the point is that where the physical dwelling is is not really that significant because if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he's your home. He's your dwelling place. Study refuge. That's one of my favorite subjects in the book of Psalms. And I did a study of that a number of years ago. And when we look at all the scriptures that refer to God as our refuge, as our home, as our shelter, that should encourage your soul. You might be living in a little tiny studio apartment. And all you wanted was to have a nice uh, English tutor home with, the, you know, and you just dreamed of this and everything. Just remember, he's your home. He's your dwelling place. And I find those words so encouraging. Not only is our dwelling place, he's our dwelling place, but he has been from generation to generation. And so Moses could say that. He could say for, 90 year, for 40 years, excuse me, for 40 years, Moses had no fixed material dwelling place, and yet he watched God comfort them and sustain them. And I don't know if you've ever had that feeling after a long day, if I could just get home. No matter what your home is, I mean, you've, you've had a hard day at work or whatever, and you're thinking, if I can just make it home, sit in my favorite chair, it's all going to be all right. And that's the attitude we should have when we think about our Lord, because he is our home, and we are at home with him. So this uh, metaphor is, is really, really true and just grips my heart that he's our dwelling place. The Lord is our dwelling place. And we can look at Lord and we can even look at his name, Adonai in this case, and what that implies for us and what he brings to us as uh, our dwelling place. And the fact that he has been from everlasting to everlasting, even before the mountains were born, he has been the believer's dwelling place. So the opening of the psalm speaks of that. The closing of the psalm talks about who he is. And we roll right into the contrast with him being eternal and us being mortal. Sometimes we get it twisted and we think we're the eternal one and he's the mortal one because we want to run our life and control our life and yet we are mortal and these verses make it so clear. Verse 3, you turn man back into dust and say return, O children of Israel. In comparison with God, man is nothing but dust. Man is weak, man is subject to the eternal who alone has power. And following these verses, we see the comparisons that bring out the uh, mortality of man. So he turns us back to dust in his sovereign will. Have you ever had a loved one leave before you were ready? Probably every loved one that left was before you were ready. I mean, I, I had said when my dad got to be 102 and 103 and 104, I kept thinking, Lord, help me not to be a basket case when you take dad. I mean, here he was in excellent health. I had just bought him a walker. Now, he, I told you, 107. I just bought the walker at uh, maybe, maybe May of the year that the Lord took him in July. So we bought the walker because at home, he would never use any assistance to get from his bed to the restroom. It's sort of like me. I go to the restroom, and I, I, when I spend the night with him, I see why I'm probably like this, but I don't know. This is probably too much information, but I just, during the night when you go to sleep, some people get up a lot to go to the restroom. I do. My dad did. You know, we just, I don't know, something with the bladder. Okay, nurse, what's wrong with me? I don't know. But anyway, so yeah, that's what I did, you know, through the night, and dad did that, but he would always be able, even in his sleep, even at 107, he could get out of the bed, get to the restroom, get back, but we noticed towards that ending period, he was having a lot of trouble getting out. And we were afraid, what if he falls? And so I said, I'm going to get this walker. Now, we did have him in a transport chair for church and stuff like that because we didn't want him going down the whole aisle of the church. And, so, and he's like a rock star at his church because he had pastored so long. So everybody's just fondling all over him. All, he's 107, look at him. You know? And so anyway, um, it was just a lot. So we wanted him in the chair so that he could 
greet all the masses and, you know, and still be, but I got him this walker. But, but even with him, you know, when I look at that, I wasn't ready. And I said, Lord, you, I, you need to slap me. If I, you know, when you take him, if I start acting crazy, when you've let him be here this long, and not only was he there that long, but he was there that long as a godly example and influence. So it was one thing to have somebody hang around and be a grumpy old person. That's one thing. But when you have somebody that radiates the light of Christ, and I thought, you, you just need, so I was even telling people, when, did I ever tell you that, Ashley? I don't know. But I was telling people, when the Lord takes my dad, smack me if I'm all crazy. But you're never ready. And somebody said to me, Marlene, it doesn't matter what, how old he is, you're not going to want him to go. And so that is, I'm sure that that is your testimony for people that you love right at this moment, that the Lord in his sovereign will has taken. And when we look at those words, you turn man back into dust. In other words, he has control of that. So I just want to encourage you in that area. If you are watching a loved one slip into the arms of the Lord right now, sure, you're going to grieve and it's going to be hard. And it was. I mean, even at 107, it was still tough for me to think of losing dad. But the bottom line is it's God's sovereign will. And part of pleasing him in all respects is giving him that putting that under his sovereign authority and knowing that he will do his timing is best. And so if you're walking through that, just hold on to the truth there. He does it, and he does it when he does it. And he will sustain us after he does it. And that happened, all the people that were so dear to me, my sister, my brother, all these different people that have gone to be in the presence of the Lord, it was his timing. Now, in light of that, the fact that it has happened, we've all experienced it. Even the youngest of us in this room, I would say, not being a prophetess, you remember I'm not a prophetess, but I would say that everyone in here has experienced death on some level, on some level. For some of us, it was somebody really, you know, but for everybody has witnessed it at some point. And so I think as he flows into these words, and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. When we look at it, we see the brevity of life. We see God's perspective on life in verse 4. And it's not the same as ours. A thousand years. Is that my phone? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> not only as brief as a day, but as brief as a watch in the night. And so, should we? <laughs> no, because it's a nice little melody. Sometimes the songs are like right on target. It can be something like a hymn or something. We just stop what we're doing and like, there it is. So anyway, she's got it. I don't know. It wasn't a hymn, but it's probably cute, whatever it was. So, um, so a thousand years in God's sight. So that's, that's the thing for a thousand years in your sight. So verse four points out God's perspective, not ours, um, are like a day. Now, what does that mean? Or like a watch in the night? Well, a watch in the night, that's obviously how they uh, measure time, military um, speaking, militarily speaking, is that a word? Okay. So a third of a night is one measurement or a fourth of a night. So not even a whole day. So even when man may live to live to be 969 years old, like Methuselah, that was still like a watch in the night in God's perspective. It was like three or four hours to our eternal God, a watch in the night. Um, 2 Peter 3.8 says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord 1,000 days is like 1,000 years and 1,000 years like one day. So what does it mean? It means that it's a short amount of time. That's the bottom line. And then he gives four very graphic comparisons, and you can see them all there. The first one is a flood, and we know how fast that happens. You have been swept away, you swept them away like a flood. So remember, Moses witnessed all these deaths, and to him it just felt like the flood waters, like something just like a, the Katrina some years ago, and now there's a new one. Is it Veronica or something with a V? Was it? Oh, Florence with a, well, us teachers, we get Fs and Vs, you know. Florence, okay. So anyway. But there's, there's those things happen quickly, and the devastation is just, you can't even measure, you know, how much there is. And so he uses that comparison. He uses sleep in the second part of verse 5. He uses grass. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about grass. He says, here is the history of the grass. Sown, grown, blown, mown, gone. And the history of man is not much more. So that's, we spring up and we're gone. 
he measures it like flight in verse 10. For soon it is gone and we fly away. He measures it, um, at, so as he measures these four measurements for us, it's just to give us a visual picture, or he was expressing to God how quickly it happens. So as you read through Psalm 90 on your own, you can see that these changes happen very quickly. A man's life is taken. And then he goes into this count about in verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. And so primarily, I think what he's doing here with the 70 year, he's talking about these individual people who came out of the wilderness. And you figure if they were like maybe in their 20s or 30s when they went in, and then you add the 40 years they were wandering, it's going to end up being 70 years. So he's really kind of, I think, describing their plight more than anything else. Because people say often, well, I've lived longer than what God said I would. But I mean, in this case, I think he's really talking about them and what their measurement was. And so Moses lived 120 years. Um, human life usually is more brief than that. But he saw the Lord's anger. And that's where we find that in the next um, um, verse, which I'll get to later in the outline, but we find how God felt about the way they spent their time. So the count. So he says the 70 years, so we talked about that. And Numbers 14.29 makes reference to this. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness, even all our numbered men, according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. And so God took care of those people, and that was their plight. And so those, Caleb and um, Joshua, of course, were spared from that, and those that were under um, 20, okay? So uh, man's sin is subject to God's wrath. That's the next principle. We have been consumed by your anger. And so that was God's response to their lifestyle. Your wrath, we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. And I would just say in terms of secret sins, just kind of hit that for a minute. Um, you know, they're not secret to God. So a lot of times we have this little phony exterior where people think we are so godly and so spiritual. And yet... God knows our secret sins, and it's pointed out right here in this passage that he is aware of those secret sins. And so don't let it fool you that because you think you're hiding something, um, you're not. And I think it's Jerry Bridges, he wrote the book about the um, respectable sins, and I got to meet him once. Cute little thing. He's with the Lord now. But he was, this was about a year before the Lord took him. And I was sitting next to him at a repast. We both knew the man that had passed away, obviously. And I just wanted to ask him like a gazillion questions about all his books and everything. And, but I spared myself and I just passed the butter or the salt or whatever he wanted. But anyway, that book about respectable sins, because so many of our sins can be hidden from the world because we have sins in our thinking and sins in our perspectives and even sins about people. You can be upset with somebody at church and you can go out of one door and they go out of the other door and you make sure you don't have to see them and you pretend that you don't really see them, but you do see them, but you try to look the other way so that they don't know that you saw them. And I mean, we do all kinds of crazy stuff and think we're getting away with it. And yet God knows our sin. And so we need to reveal it and come clean and say, Lord, please, as the other prayer in Psalm 119, don't let this particular sin overwhelm me and don't let me think that I am fooling you with this sin, because he knows about it. And I have a great example about hidden sin and how the fact that my mother, now you know she's the African-American Lucille Ball, right? I mean, she's with the Lord now, but that's who she was. Didn't have the red hair, but, you know, loved the Lord. She had everything else, all the humor, all of it, all the enthusiasm. And one time, uh, my husband and I, I love to share this example about hidden sin, um, one time, you know, we were dating, and I had to be back by midnight, and that was because my mom felt like anything you do after midnight should not even be thought about to be done. You need to be home that's within that same day. So we were engaged. I mean, really, I, we were practically married, but I had to be in at midnight. Now, what possessed me to stay out past midnight, being the daughter of Margaret Jones? I mean, I don't know what made me think that I was going to be able to sneak into the house after midnight. 
But somehow I had some massive brain freeze and thought I could do this. So we go to this movie. I knew before we went that I wasn't going to get home till like 12:15. I knew that because I, you know, I could tell time. I could see what time, you know. So I knew the movie started. I knew the distance. But I thought, oh, we got this. It's okay. So I put my rollers in my bathroom. My room was upstairs. You had to pass their room, my parents' room, to get to your room. So if you got past that door, you were home free. And the steps were not carpeted. It was those kind of noisy, like marble. Someone, you weren't sneaking around too, were you? Good. Okay, but she knows about the steps. So you have to really tiptoe, took the shoes off, everything. And I am so home free, ladies. It was just amazing. I thought, I can't believe I did this. And of course, I was with Paul Felix. She loved him. So even if I did get caught, I mean, how bad could it be? I was only like, what, 12 minutes late? So I, was, I made it. I got upstairs. My secret sin. No one knew that I was coming home late. So I get in. I put my rollers in. I had it all planned because I knew I was going to be late. So I come yawning out of the bathroom just in case, just in case she's on the steps or something. I got it, you know. Jammies on, had left them in the bathroom. I mean, I was so together. So I go yawning into my room thinking, you know, and I go to the bathroom, remember? Like five and six times a night. So, I mean, it's logical. She's coming from the bathroom. I pull my covers back. My sister's in the room. My sister's in the room because we share a room. She was the neat one on the neat side. Mine was the junkie side. I pull my covers. She's in the bed. She's in my bed with an alarm clock. She's holding it up, and it's a glowing one that glows. I remember it like yesterday. It glows in the dark, and she says, when I say midnight, that's what I mean. I don't mean 1210. I don't mean, like, I mean, of course I was traumatized. I tell this story. I tell this story all the time because, I mean, it scarred me for life. Look at me. I'm like shaking now. You know, it was just, it was, but I got the point. Do you think I was ever late again? And I thought to myself, if, if my mother, and she was that type that always, did you have one of those moms, well, you have some of you are too young because your mom's like right near you, but the older ones, did you have one of those moms that it was like she had eyes in the back of her head and one of those types? You did even as a young woman. Okay. And, and even, like, I would want to say something really rude, or, I know what you're about to say. <laughs> it's just like, what? But I was going to say that, but I didn't. But I, you know, but I might as well, because she knew. And so to be able to just observe and know and be aware of my sin the way that she was, I could give you story after story, but I won't. Don't worry. This is not about stories. It's about the Word of God. But I could give you a bunch of them about her catching everybody's sin in our whole house, all six kids. I mean, everybody's got all kinds of things. And, and it was because she was aware and knew. And I think if God could do that with a mother, just think of what he knows. I mean, she could read my mind, it seems like. But he made my mind. and He knows how wicked I am. And he knows how wicked my thoughts are. And so don't think you can coddle that sin. We're back on that same point. We've been talking about sin in each of the talks, but sometimes we have that besetting temptation that we don't want to let go of. We don't want the Lord in that room, and you want to keep it locked. It might be certain programs that you watch on TV. Now, see, the last session, I can just roll it out because, and I'm not even counting on Alicia to take me to the airport because she could dump me by the side of the road if I say <laughs> the wrong thing. But I know Ashley will get me to the airport. <laughs> but at the end, you can let it all hang out because it's the last session. <laughs> but the point is that we have those things. We have them. And we don't want the Lord to deal with that. And so I don't want you to leave here today with that same toothache sin. You know, and I, I was mentioning TV programs and movies, and there's certain things that we expose this mind to, and then we always tell ourselves, oh, you know, I'm so, I'm so spiritual, Marlene. It's nice for you to say that for some ladies, but, you know, actually, it doesn't affect me. When I'm watching all that immorality, people cursing, him sleeping with her, and her sleeping with her, and, you know, all of those things, it, it doesn't really... I'm sorry it bothers you, but it doesn't really affect my mind. I can, I can watch all of that. I can be on the internet. I can do all of that. No problem. And there are, you know, there are things that the Lord has told us that we should not put ourselves in that position. And we're wondering why we look at our husband sometime, and he just doesn't look that cute anymore. And he just, like, even his whole, it's just not what it used to be. And a lot of that comes 
from a lot of the nonsense that we feed our mind on instead of the Word of God. And then we think he's supposed to be more like the guy on TV. Like, where is that in Scripture? And we have everything all twisted and mixed up because of what we feed into our mind. And so I just want to stress again that that secret sin that nobody knows about, you don't have to tell anybody in your prayer circle about the wickedness that's really there because it's just between you and the Lord. But today I'm saying think about it, pray about it, and ask the Lord to bring these things to mind so that next year and in 10 years you're not at the same place. You will still have things that you're dealing with, but that besetting thing that you might have been hanging on and gnawing at you for years, that wicked, evil gossip thing that you have, you know, whatever it is, the Lord can deal with that stuff. But we have to be willing to lay that before him and say, Lord, I want you to take this. I want you to deal with this. So secret sin. God knows it, and God judges sin. Well, we're going to whip right into the very last um, section there because the... Roman numeral four kind of is going to overlap, so we won't need to spend too much time there. But we're going to look at the petitions to God in light of life's brevity. So we're convinced that life is brief. We're convinced because we've seen all of those four illustrations. We're convinced because we've seen people we love pass away far too early. So we're convinced that life is brief. So because life is so brief, what should we do? And because life is so brief, we need to ask again for God's instruction. And so in verse 12, we find these words, number, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. So going back to the Colossians passage, that's what we want so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord because of the knowledge of his will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding that we talk about in verses 9 and 10. Because of all of that, we want to walk worthy. So instruction here is we want God to help us to number our days. So the object of the teaching is number our days. That's what we want you to do, Lord. In other words, help us apprehend the brevity of life. Help us not to take for granted these days that you've given us. Help us to value each day. Help us to understand that we need to invest in eternity. We spend so much time. Um, I told you, I, you can, it can be like we can really bat it hard now because we're down to the last minutes or ticking away. But we can spend so much time on our physical appearance and being obsessed with it. Like we can look at magazines and look at, you know those people are so made up. And so you do realize that, right? That that's not really them. But we look at that stuff, and then we look in the mirror, and then we look at them, and we look in the mirror. Then we're depressed, like for a week, because we got this, and we got that, and little crow's feet, or whatever you call them, coming out of the sides of our eyes. And why do I look like this? We can spend hours and years. You know what, how much money is spent on cosmetics? And really, you know, I mean, you look a little different for a minute, but ladies, I got to tell you. The party will be over. The lights are coming out and it's over, you know. I mean, you can hold on as long as you can and Miss Clairol can help you out, and, you know, but it, you're just done at a certain point. You're just not going to look like you're 20. When you're 60, you're not going to look like you're 20 and you're not supposed to. And I think when we're in our 60s, we do our younger women a disservice when we try to pretend that you can. I mean, you want to look as decent as you can. But to feel like I need to number my days by being in front of a mirror and trying to make myself look 20 years younger and then being frustrated when I don't, when I could be investing in eternity. I don't have to spend every waking moment frazzled because I don't look good anymore. You know? And maybe you didn't in the beginning. Everybody's not pretty. You know? I mean, sometimes even a baby is kind of subject to, you know. But <laughs> we always say they're all cute. Now, all the ones here are cute. All the ones here are cute. But I remember my mom used to always say at church, because there would always be those babies, and some of them really weren't cute. And so she said, she, she would just say, now that's a baby. That's a baby, all right. You know, I'm like, mother, stop it. You know, they're going to think their baby's ugly. And I'm like, ooh. <laughs> but God's, you know, I mean, this is God's creation. So we love them all. And to us, they're cute. If they're ours, they're cute. My son had a head that was You've seen a banana before, haven't you? <laughs> I'm not kidding you, girls. I think it was, you know, the trauma of birth because it was, a, you know, a late C-section. and I mean, that, I was rubbing that head, you know, as they said, if you do it in the beginning. He has a beautiful head now. 
But oh my goodness, I mean, sometimes they just come out, you know. So anyway, but the, the point is that we don't want to obsess with things that are not important. And our appearance, the Lord looks at our heart, right? I mean, he is concerned about our heart. And so I have to say to a ladies group that we've got to not just invest in things that are temporal, but things that are eternal. So how are we spending our time? Is it just so I can have five degrees? You know, I want to have my BA and my MA and my PhD and my da da da. And it, nothing wrong with it. I'm not putting it down. But I think in perspective, we think that we're not complete because we don't have this and we don't have that. We don't have the right education. We don't live in the right neighborhood. We don't have the right husband. We don't have the right, you know, and on and on and on and on. And we spend hours and hours and days and weeks and months and years obsessing about things that are not eternal. And so this psalm is trying to ask us to look at what Moses did. He knew they were dying like that. So he would look at somebody and know that you're out of here, you know, in a couple of days. This is what you need to be doing. We need to number what little days we have left so that we can salvage whatever is left and give the Lord a heart of wisdom. And so I just want you to consider that, to think about your days that are left and, and say, Lord, I just want to don't, I don't want to waste them. I want them to count. I want them to be of value. Um, I told you that I'm 61. So this is kind of morbid, but if I were to live till I, till I were 70, my total number of days would be 21,472 days. If, if I live to be 70, which I may not, you know, I may not even make it through today, but if I did, I would have 3,168 days left before I would die. And that's actually numbering my days and counting them. And he hasn't promised me till 70. And of course, if I lived as long as my dad did, uh, well, if I lived until I was 80, I'd have 6,688 days left. And if I lived to be 107 like my dad, I would have 16,192 days left. But the key is days left. There wouldn't be, you know, there would be an end to the days. And so, I'm not saying that you should number your days and put a little thing, and, and especially you girls that are as young as you are, and say, let's do 70, and then you tear it off each day and go, okay, Lord, I can really see that thing is going down. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm not saying do that, but I'm saying not so much on a literal level, but I'm saying that we should definitely take some time to think about the fact that we're not going to be here forever. And what the legacy that we leave, we don't want it to be just somebody pining away in front of the mirror or wishing they could be in another stage of life their whole life. I had read something about a guy, I didn't read it when I was at that point because I'm like, I wanna be done, um, I always like to be done before she says. Is that a pride thing? I don't know, but I wanna be done. So anyway, he was dying to finish high school um, so he could go to college. He was dying to finish college so he could start a career. He was dying to get married so he could start a family. He was dying to have kids so that uh, he was dying for his kids to turn 18 so that they would leave home. And then he was dying to finish working so he could be retired. And then he was just dying. <laughs> and I thought about that and I thought, we shouldn't always, I mean, we should look forward to the next season, but we should take advantage of the season we're in. I had no idea 60s were going to be this cool. I mean, I thought 50s were just amazing. 30s were my worst. I mean, turning 30. Well, isn't that crazy? That was like my most traumatic thing, turning from 29 to 30. And I was married and having, you know, I had the things that you think you're supposed to have. But somehow it was just like a really hard birthday for me. But after that, it's been party on. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't believe the 50s and the 60s. Wow. So some of you have like 40 years left before you get to try the 60s. But they're really cool. You can talk to some other 60-year-olds. They are amazing. And then I had those role models of my dad. I mean, he was half of his life only. He still had another half when he was 60. So that was, that was really cool. So anyway, um, so the result of the teaching would be to apply and obtain a heart of wisdom. Not again to be puffed up and be proud of, I know how to spend the rest of my life. But it's so that I can be wise and make wise choices. Um, Let's move on. And for a wise woman, those choices are just amazing. A wise woman builds her house, Proverbs 14.1 says. So there's something 
and numbering our days to really focus on the home that the Lord has given us. Whether that's a one-bedroom studio or whatever it is, am I going to make this a place of refuge for those loved ones that come in? And if I'm a single lady, am I going to make it an environment where people can come in and see Christ? Um, am I going to be a woman who fears the Lord? Proverbs 31:30. That's a woman of wisdom. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. That's timeless, fearing the Lord. So you can fear the Lord when you go blind. You can fear the Lord when you no longer can walk. You can fear the Lord when you no longer can hear. I mean, it's always going to be in style and it's always going to be perfect to fear the Lord. And so there's something that we can do. A wise woman, she opens her mouth in wisdom. That's what we learn in Proverbs 31:26. So we want to number our days. We want to be wise. Deal with our mouth. That's a big thing. I mean, we can cut people down. Some people know how to slice and dice up a person with that mouth. And yet we can use that mouth for God's glory. We can have a heart of wisdom as it relates to our mouth. We can have a heart of wisdom as it relates to the big S. Whether you're single or married, you have to deal with the big S. Submitting. Submitting. And nobody wants to submit. And especially wives don't want to submit to their husband. It's the bad word. It's the S word. But we have to remember that it's a spiritual problem when we don't want to submit. Because so many women say, you know, Marlene, if I had a godly husband, I would submit. But then you have to remember what we learn in James 4, 7, when we are exhorted, submit therefore to God. So why do we have to be commanded to submit to God? Isn't he perfect? We still don't want to submit. And I would submit to you <laughs> that the reason is that we don't like authority. We, you know, as a little kid, you don't want anybody telling you what to do. And as a grown woman, especially if you've been single for a long time and you're thinking about marriage, that is a time where you're thinking to yourself, now, I'll love him and I'll do this and that, but I have been able to make it just fine on my own. Thank you. I bought my own house. I have my own. And so don't think you're coming in here going to tell me. Well, remember, you want to do it God's way, right? And so a woman who wants to have a heart of wisdom wants to see what God says about all of those areas. And submitting is one huge one. And it is definitely a spiritual problem. It's, there's no other way to look at it. Being content with our circumstances. We learn that in Philippians 4. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And so we want to show a heart of wisdom when it comes to that. We want to have a heart of wisdom in every area of pleasing God. In forgiveness. We want to show that we have a heart of wisdom. Is there somebody you need to forgive today? Came up here and thought, well, she's not talking about forgiveness. <laughs> Good, because I'm never going to forgive him. For what... Okay, but a heart of wisdom, the days left. You don't want to have regrets. You don't want to have to say, if only I had said this to that person. Do it. Just do it. If you need to ask forgiveness or you need to forgive, a heart of wisdom forgives, because that's what God has called us to. A heart of wisdom, trust in him. A heart of wisdom deals with, you took my, one of my famous verses, um, our dear sister, what, what is your, tell me your name again. Mary. Mary. Oh, Mary, what a godly name. Wow. <laughs> Doesn't get any more spiritual than that. Wow, Mary. Okay. So anyway, um, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Mary. Godly Mary referred to that. It, it, I mean, because it's not if they do. We're women. And even for men, we take a little grain of something and we spiral that into a massive worrying thing. And we have a huge thing that we're worried about and it started like a little pebble. And that verse identifies that. That when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, I'm not going to let that worry go to its worry end. Instead, I am going to let God's word counsel and console my heart. And that's what we have to do when it creeps in. Just like we said about emergency, you know, taking that when you know you have the flu and you take, that's what you have to do with that worry. When that grain starts, you're like, okay, let me just hold up and go to God's word and see what he says about that. And I, I have no, absolutely no time for this illustration, but I'm going to do it anyway because it really emphasizes this about worry. When I was a young bride, my husband, he was constantly, he was a, before he was a Greek professor and a pastor and all that, he worked on big mainframe computers. 
He was a programmer, and it was, all, it was like Greek, just like he, he's, he's a Greek scholar now, but he was a computer scholar. So all those words that they used to names, like some of you that were into programming 20, 30, 40, you know, a lot of years ago, you know Jez 2 and B4 and whatever. Anyway, he would, people would call him, and I was a young bride, and they would call him to solve these problems at the, because the computer was about the size of this room at that time. You know, you would walk in. I mean, really, it was crazy. So anyway, um, he would solve all these problems, and they would call him to figure out what to do, and then eventually he would just have to get up and go. Well, one night, he was trying to talk somebody through it. They couldn't do it. He got up, and he would have this habit of calling me and telling me, I'll be home, honey, in about an hour. Why did I believe that? I mean, he meant it. It wasn't like he was lying. He really meant it. But he very rarely did it. And I'm this young bride. We have no kids. I got married at 19. I don't know if I told you that. So I was probably like 20. So, you know. Anyway, one day he called and said he'd be home. And he didn't come home. And I just decided I was going to worry. And I paced back and forth. And ladies, and I, like I said, he had done this over and over again, where he would get in, engrossed in the problem at work, and he would forget to call me and say, no, actually, I'm going to be another three hours. So why would I do this? Like, why wouldn't I open God's word? Instead, I didn't know Psalm 9419. So I took that thing. I had the man on the side of a road in a, in a trunk. I mean, somebody had slashed his throat. He was in a trunk. I mean, this is me. And I just know that he's, and then what would, and I'm a young bride, I've only been married for a year. Will it be my dad? That, that would be so sad. My dad will have to do his service. And what would I, who would, I mean, it was just sick. You know, I mean, it was sick. It was sick. I'm embarrassed to say, but it was like 40 years ago. So hopefully I've grown. <laughs> but we can do that with stuff. It's not even anything, you know, and the next thing you know, you're a basket case. You are a basket case and need a biblical counselor to come and, and bring you on home, you know, because you're just so frazzled. So if we would take those to him, it would change our life. Okay, instruction regarding life's end. We see that in Psalm 39. And we have, just for those that are interested, about seven minutes. Okay? Just so you know. Okay. So instruction regarding life's end. And this is all woven in with Psalm 90. So in Psalm 39, verse 4, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Isn't that a great request? Behold, you made my days. And then there's descriptions there, the hand breaths and the time. Lifetime has nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. So our prayer is, Lord, help me to know how transient I am. Don't let me think I'm going to live forever. Let me measure my days so I can use them to your glory and your honor. And then, Lord, be compassionate to me in this time that is left. And those are verses 13 to 17. And so we see that his first petition is for God to return or turn back, something we saw similar in Psalm 119. Return, O Lord, and we see it in uh, Psalm 119.76 as well, asking God to have favor on the individual. Asking for God's satisfaction, we see. This is in verses 14 and 15. I love, 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 love these verses. Oh, satisfy us in the morning. With what? With your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days thou hast afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. So whatever days they have left, Moses is praying that the Lord would satisfy them in the morning. And do you know, ladies, that you can really have a rotten day when you don't let the Lord satisfy you in the morning? When your morning starts with something else that you want to satisfy you, your day is going to go south. But if you reflect upon the loving kindness of the Lord in the morning, you can have a joyful day. Because you'll be thinking about his love and his goodness and his grace and how you want to share that in the workplace. And so to be satisfied with him at the beginning results in gladness that's not even comparable. So I encourage you to do that, to think about him at the beginning, the literal morning, but also, as I mentioned in the other passage, the mornings in your life, the beginnings of things in your life. And then we have the request about God's work. This is a prayer that God would not only display his work, but establish his work in what they did. 
and whatever days they had left. So those are verses 16 and 17. Let thy work appear to thy servants and thy majesty to their children and let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and do confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. So we see God's majesty, the favor of the Lord, and then the work of our hands. The effect of this favor is expressed in the last twofold appeal. Not only do we want to see his work, but also we want our work to be established. And this petition begins with the appeal that the beauty of God would be on them, but it's an appeal for God to enable them to have a productive life. So even if you are retired or not, or wherever, whatever stage you're in, you can have a productive life for God's glory. And this is a great prayer request. Well, Roman numeral four is just talking about the brevity of life again from Psalm 39. We just read it, so I'll let you look over those points on your own. And the futility of amassing riches. You know that none of it's going in that coffin with you, right? None of it. You've never seen somebody's house trailing behind with a Hertz. I mean, it's that little space, and that's where their frame is, and God forbid that their real soul is not with the Lord at that point because they were amassing riches. So amassing riches is not the way to go. And then in, back in Psalm 39 again, when you have a chance to look at that, I think, I think Godly Mary mentioned this verse about where our hope is in verse 7. You don't need to turn there. But and now, Lord, for what do I wait? What am I waiting for for the rest of the days of my life? My hope is in thee. And all over the place in scripture, we have our hope and our confidence should be in him. And we have so many powerful scriptures that remind us of that. The question in Psalm 39 was, what do I look for in life? What do I look for? What am I supposed to do for the rest of my life? I'm supposed to hope in him. That's what I'm supposed to do. And so there's just a lot of key verses that remind us of that. He is the God of hope. And so that's, um, that's something that we want to think about in this world where it seems like things are so hopeless that he is the God of hope. It's actually Romans 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ladies, um, we don't want to waste our life. It was John Piper that wrote a book about that, Don't Waste Your Life. We don't want to waste the days that the Lord has given us. And that's why when we look at Ephesians, which don't turn there, but be careful how you walk, ladies. We talked about walking worthy. And so I'm closing with this verse. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And so then don't be foolish but understand what the will of God is, okay? That's what we want to do, is understand what the will of God is. Well, it's just been a glorious time hanging out with you. You're beautiful ladies. I've gotten to meet some of you up close and personal, and you're just as sweet as you can be. And you welcomed me in and my two girls and made us feel like we're part of the family, and I can speak for them. We're very grateful for that, to be able to just in this short 24-hour period of being able to see you these four different sessions. You have definitely made us feel welcome, and so um, we're glad to be able to be a part of it. And I just want to close with this poem, and we'll close in prayer. And we've been talking about walking, and I found this, and I think it's kind of cute, the life of a shoe. Have you ever thought about a shoe? I mean, and what it does. I, I remember having my third graders do creative writing. Now pretend you're a shoe and tell me what, you, you know, I mean, all of these things. So they didn't write this though. Okay. The life of a Christian is a bit like the shoe. We start off shiny, we're clean, and we're new. The more we walk, the more we wear, sometimes a scuff, smudge, or tear, a broken heel, a furrowed seam, a hole in the soul, an impossible dream. Sometimes we're shelved for a moment in time, protected and sheltered for his glory sublime. For God ordains each step that we take. Remember that. We just talked about that in Psalm 119. I shouldn't interrupt the flow of the poem. Okay, let me go back to the beginning of that. Why do people do that? You know, okay. Sometimes we're shelved for a moment in time, protected and sheltered for his glory sublime. For God ordains each step that we take. His will for us is that we will make decisions wise and pathways straight,
But if we fall, his grace is great. And God in his mercy and God in his grace works like the cobbler and mends to erase. He polishes flaws, sews up loosened tongues. He tightens our shoes and makes us to run. The race that he gives us, the work we must finish, his wisdom will teach us, enlighten, replenish. The soles of our shoes will reflect how we've trod. Has his word been our lamp? Has our light been from God? Did our feet climb mountains with truth or disdain? And did we take courage or did we complain? The trials he sent us, no matter the test, we passed or we failed, but wisdom was best. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are wise and that you give us the truths we need in your word. Father, we want to be women who walk worthy to please you in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you. And so I just pray for each lady here, Father, that you would do that, that you would work mightily in our hearts. And as we go back through these passages of scripture, we pray, Lord, that as we study again on our own, that you would just motivate us, challenge us, help us to realize the importance of doing things your way so that we are our life is according to uh, the steps that you have ordained for us. And so whether we're married, single, whatever our plight in life is right now, widowed, whatever the case, we just pray, Lord, that we would order our steps according to your word and that we would want to walk in a manner worthy of you. Help us to number our days. Help us to remember that it's not that we have an eternity on earth. We have a very limited window, Lord. Help us not to waste it. Help us to use these days to your glory and your honor. In your precious name we pray, amen.